So I'll begin by reading this axiom. And I'm, I think that the plan will be to just read it every week so that we get this sort of fixed in our mind, what, 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 what I'm doing. Because, as I said earlier, we've been talking about, or we're in a series about the spiritual gifts, and yet I haven't said anything about spiritual gifts, and, and won't for uh, a while. I think there might be two or three more weeks before we actually begin to talk about the gifts themselves. That's what everybody wants to talk about usually wanting to talk about them so badly that they skip all of the foundation and the groundwork, and then when they begin to think about spiritual gifts, they go crazy, and uh, it's unbiblical. So let me read for you this, this general statement that summarizes what I'm trying to convey. Just as our Lord Jesus Christ, in His earthly ministry, displayed the glory of God in word and deed through the power of the Holy Spirit, so also the local church... The mystical body of Christ is to display the glory of God on earth through the preaching of His authoritative Word and, we could say, deeds of sacrificial love. We could say deeds of service, mercy, etc. through the power of the same Holy Spirit. And now I'll recap some of the puzzle pieces that we've seen so far. The foundational metaphor in that is that the church is called in Scripture the body of Christ. Christ in Scripture is called the head of the body, the church. So we have this picture in our minds of, uh, of an anatomical human body, if you'd like to think of it that way. The, the body, mystical, is the church. And every local church can have that title, the body. We don't have to see ourselves as merely a hand or a a. Uh, a kneecap of the broader body of Christ, but we are the body of Christ. And then at the top of that head, or the, the top of that body is the head who is Christ. He, he leads, He guides, He gives power, instruction, and everything to His body. The second piece of the puzzle, we took that one part, the head, and now we be, we, we've begun to sort of open that up, the head of the church, Christ Himself. Christ is God. Christ is man. As God, He has all of the essential attributes of God. As man, He has all of the essential attributes of man. Quoting from our confession, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. So that, and we concluded that week by saying, whatever Christ did in His earthly ministry, He did as a man. And we need that. We can't lose that. If we, if we set that aside and say, well, it's not really that important that He carried out His ministry as a man, we have no salvation because we are men in need of a, a Savior who can stand as our substitute. Whatever He did on His earthly ministry, He did as a man. That's piece number two. Then digging a little bit further, last Lord's Day we saw what He did in His earthly ministry. What did Christ do in His earthly ministry? He glorified God in word and deed. And our purpose in all of this, or in all of or our, our Lord's purpose in all of His preaching and all of His acts of mercy was to display the glory of God on the earth. And He stated that clearly in John 17, 4, praying to His Father, I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That brings us to the fourth piece of the puzzle. And we're, we're digging down even further into this idea of the head of the church. It, we'll come back to the body itself. But now we're just analyzing the head still. 
And we're going to consider the source of Christ's power during His humiliation, specifically His earthly ministry. So we could put it in the form of a question. Last Lord's Day, what did Christ do in His earthly ministry? He glorified God in word and deed. The question for today is, how did a man carry out the ministry or a ministry like we see in the Gospels, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. How did He do that? What was the source of His power? What was the source of His effective preaching? What was the source of His constant diligence to be about His Father's business? Very often when we think about the mighty power of the Lord's earthly ministry, our minds immediately go to walking on water, raising the dead, calming the storms. But just think about the fact that the man Jesus was so faithful and diligent and busy in, his, in the work that was given to him. He never wasted a single second of time. It is 33 and a half years. Never a wasted moment, ever. He never squandered any of the resources given to him. He, he could never be found guilty of being a poor steward of an hour or of 45 minutes. We think it's astonishing that He calmed the storm. I think it'd be pretty astonishing if I could say that I went an entire day and didn't waste a moment. And, and Christ did that every moment of His life. How did He do it? Even those kinds of facts are astonishing. And we could spend some time delving into that if we wanted to, but th that's not really the purpose. The question is, how did, how did He do this? Our knee-jerk answer... And I think it's very often because we want to deliver ourselves out from under the guilt that we feel when we see how poorly we measure up to His standard. Our knee-jerk answer is to say, well, He was able to do that because He's God. And you see a lot of people say that today when you, when you might point out a particular infraction or sin or uh, a falling short in, in some area of God's law. And you might point to the man Jesus and they'll say, well, I'm not Jesus, okay? Like, like that gets them off the hook. He's God, so of course He was able to do that. That's our, our knee-jerk reaction. When we read passages like we read last Lord's Day, Matthew 4, 23 and 24, He went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. We could stop right there if we wanted to. Look at what He does. Every day He's just busy, traveling, walking, preaching. It's hard to preach two messages in a day. That, that drains a man. Here he is, and I, and I get to drive here. I get to sleep in a bed. We could stop right there and say, how did he do this? He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. They brought him all the sick. They didn't say, well, he's, he's doing a lot of work. Let's give him a break. Let's give him a rest. He's clearly exhausted. No, that, that spurred the people on to bring him more work Coming from miles around, they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. That's a, that's a vast uh, category or, or list of, of things that he was doing. Matthew 8, 16, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. He cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. They didn't say... He's been busy all day. Look, we've, we've wasted enough of your time. We understand you've got to get in the bed. You've got a long day tomorrow. We'll just... No, they, they just kept bringing. Kept bringing. And our tendency is to look at that and say, Boy, look at God go. 
But that's not what, what we see. That's not what's happening. We read passages like this and we assume that the Lord Jesus is simply carrying out the works of divinity. Now, to be sure, these are displays of divinity, but not His divinity. I think this is accurate to say. Not His divinity as the eternal Son somehow influencing His humanity or acting like a, a, a human nature in a, in a, or using His human nature like a hand in a puppet or a glove. Remember, without conversion, without composition, without confusion... Acts chapter 5, verse 12. You don't have to turn yet. We'll look at some... I'm just going to list some of these things. Again, our knee-jerk reaction is he did this because he was God. Boy, look at God go. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They're not God. We can't say that about them. It doesn't say that they prayed to God and then they waited and watched God respond. The apostles were using their hands to perform signs and wonders. And Paul refers to these in 2 Corinthians 10 as the signs of a true apostle. They were performed with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. We say, well, yeah, but that, the word there, apostles, that's a plural word. The apostles. So maybe they got together like those five kids on Captain Planet, you know. With our powers combined, we can make this man to walk. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen wasn't even an apostle. Stephen was acting by himself, and he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. We say, yeah, but Jesus could cast out demons. Acts chapter 16, verses 16 to 18. As they were going to the place of prayer, we were, or as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Paul could cast out demons. He did do it in the name of Jesus Christ, but he's the one who did it. But Jesus could make the lame to walk. Acts chapter 3 verse 2, A man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Verse 6, But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Peter did that. Now, most of us have had the experience of trying to teach young children to walk. And it takes a while to get them just somewhat stable on their feet. And then they get stable on their feet. And then after that for a while, it's pretty much their, their head that allows them to gain some sort of momentum. They can't run. They just sort of lean and, and begin to move a little quicker. And then as they get a little older, they, they say, look at me, I can jump, right? And, and their feet don't come off the ground. They're just, they don't have the leg strength and the power or the, I don't know what you would call it, the dexterity to even leap. This man, he's never walked in his life. Lame from birth, he's never walked. In an instant, he's standing, running, leaping, 
And Peter did that. Again, he, he does it in the name of Christ, but this was Peter who performed that miracle. In Acts chapter 14, verses 8 to 10, at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth, had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he was, had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. So there's Paul. We say, okay, yeah, but Jesus, Jesus healed people who were completely paralyzed. Acts chapter 9, verses 33 and 34. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Again, the name of Christ is invoked, but this was performed by Peter. Okay, well, Jesus raised the dead. Acts chapter 9, verse 40, Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Peter raised the dead. In Acts chapter 20, Eutychus, you know, he falls out of the window. And it seems to be that Paul raised him from the dead. So Peter and Paul, they raised the dead. We say, okay, well, well, Jesus had power to heal that one woman when he wasn't even looking. She just come up behind him and touched his garment and he healed her. Acts chapter 19, verses 11 and 12. God was doing great wonders or great extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them. And the evil spirits came out of them. You could take Paul's hanky. We've seen this stuff on TV in our day. By the prayer cloth or by the whatever. This is where they got that idea. They were healed. In Acts chapter 5, they would bring out people and lay them on the streets and cots and mats so that as Peter came by, his shadow would go over them. And the implication seems to be they were healed when his shadow went over them. This is, this is mighty power at work here. And again, we can't look at any of these men and say, well, yeah, but they're God because they're not God. Now, in all of that, the last thing that I want to do is detract from the ministry of Christ. But... The point is to show you that the things that he did in displaying the glory of God in word and deed were not things that were exclusive to his divine nature as the Son. We can't say, well, it's just because he's God. They were carried out in the fullness of his humanity and even reproduced in the ministries of the apostles who were not in the least part divine. So we come back to the question, how did a man, fully man, true man, all man, how did he carry out a ministry like we see in the Gospels? How was the ministry carried out like that of Jesus Christ? Well, here's the answer. The Lord Jesus Christ carried out His earthly ministry through the power of the Holy Spirit, or in the power of the Holy Spirit, or by the power of of the Holy Spirit. Now all I want to do today is just show you that. Show you that this is what the Gospels bear out. We'll see that the Holy Spirit is given to Christ. We'll see the Spirit's power in His deeds. And then we'll see the Spirit's power in His words. So first, then the Spirit given. When you're reading through the Gospels, it's not a small thing whenever you notice that all four Gospels record the same event. Uh, the birth of Jesus doesn't even get four Gospels. 
It gets one. Matthew says after he was born and, go, and goes on from there. The birth of Jesus doesn't get four Gospels. All four Gospels, Mark three, or Matthew 3, Mark 1, Luke 3, and John 1, all record his baptism. Matthew 3, 16 and 17. When Jesus was baptized, immediately He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to Him, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on Him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Mark chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. When He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Luke chapter 3, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. John chapter 1, verses 31 to 34. I myself did not know Him. This is John the Baptist speaking. I myself did not know Him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water that He might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, quote, I saw the Spirit descend on Him, or descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Him. I myself did not know Him. But He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, here's what John the Baptist is saying, here's what God told me. He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then John the Apostle adds his comment, or this might be John the Baptist again, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. It's interesting, and this could be a topical sermon all in itself, to notice the various ways that the Spirit... Uh, puts a stamp of approval on the ministry of Christ. The Spirit in His conception, the Spirit at His baptism, the Spirit at his, uh, in His death, the Spirit as his, at His resurrection. We could walk through and see how the Spirit is always sealing the ministry of Christ. But here we see the Spirit coming upon Jesus. Every gospel record includes the baptism of Christ and the sending of the Holy Spirit to rest upon Christ. And John the Baptist explained, this is, how, this is what God told me to, to look for. This is how I'm going to know who He is. John's his cousin. He's been out in the wilderness. He don't even know what he looks like. But this is how you'll know. You'll see the Spirit come upon Him, descend and remain on Him. Matthew used the word rest. The definitive mark of Christ's sonship, remember every time, this is my beloved Son. The Spirit comes. My beloved Son. My beloved Son. Every time. He's declared to be the Son of God in power at His baptism by the Spirit. Declared to be the Son of God in power at His resurrection by the Spirit. There's a theme here. But this was the definitive mark of Christ's sonship. that it would, The Spirit would come and remain on Him. It would not leave. It would remain. Now, this is not to say that prior to this, the Spirit had no influence upon the man Jesus. He was full of the Holy Spirit from His conception. But the scene here is describing Christ, and, and some have pointed this out. This is sort of His being anointed by the Holy Spirit for His ministry as prophet, priest, and king. Immediately after this scene, we read in Luke chapter 4, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Same thing that it was said of Stephen 
as he's being stoned to death and he gazed into heaven, full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit in the same way that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. Not to the same degree. Stephen didn't have the same degree. But it's the same thing. Another side of that same idea in John chapter 3. Christ is speaking, He says in verses 34 and 35, For He whom God has sent utters the words of God, for He gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The sense there is that God the Father gives the Spirit without measure to the Son, the fullness of the undivided power of the Holy Spirit to Christ. So we see that from the beginning of His earthly ministry... The Holy Spirit is sent, descends down upon, remains upon Christ, fills Him, and then leads Him throughout His ministry. Now we can turn. Turn to Acts chapter 10. And we're going to focus on some passages a little more intently. What I want to do is, is go into the details he glorifies God in word and deed. Last week we saw that generally, and then we said here's His deeds, and here are His words. His deeds were carried out as a man. His words were delivered as a man. And here we see His deeds carried out in the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 10, verses 36 through 38. As for the word they sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace... Through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, from the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with Him. Now Peter is preaching to Gentiles here. He's calling their attention to the Christ that he preaches, the Savior. He refers to him as Jesus of Nazareth. And he, and he basically assumes, you know this man from current events. You know what took place. As for this word, he said, you, you yourselves know. And then he begins to describe the ministry of Jesus. And he says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. That would be uh, what we just saw at his baptism. He went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So think through this, this little description. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. The word anoint means to smear, to anoint with oil, to daub, we might say dab, with oil. Now this is a reference to what happened to the prophets and the priests and the kings of the Old Testament. They were anointed with oil and that consecrated them or set them apart for the service. But it doesn't say God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with oil. Now this little phrase, God anointed Jesus, that could be a dangerous phrase in the hands of Arians, right? See there, He's not God. God anointed Jesus, therefore they can't be the same. And there, there, we'll see several passages like this to which the only response is the biblical doctrine of the Holy Trinity. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth not with oil but with the Holy Spirit and with power. And so the idea is that God poured out the Holy Spirit onto the man, Jesus of Nazareth. And that anointing 
with the Holy Spirit was also an anointing with power. It was a bestowal of power in and by the Holy Spirit. We could even say the Holy Spirit is the power of God, the working power of God. God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit. It says, He went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil. That's His deeds. For God was with Him. Another very strange phrase. The reason that He went about doing good, the reason that He went about healing, is, is that God was with Him. Now, why would God have to be with Him if He is, in fact, God in human flesh? Well, the answer is because He's man. He's true man. In His ministry, Jesus acted as a man, just like us, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 17. On one of those days as He was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Him to heal. The King James says, The power of the Lord was present to heal. Now, if we're not careful, we would say, Well, isn't He the Lord? Why does the power of the Lord have to be with the Lord? Why does the power of God have to be with God to heal? If this is truly God in the flesh, why would this statement be made? Well, it's because Jesus Christ, the head of the church, in His earthly ministry, is acting as a true man. Now, I don't use the word acting as in He's a stage actor, a thespian, but He's, he's carrying out, He's working, He's doing these things as a man. It says, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Obviously, power is being given. And this power is a power to carry out the merciful deeds of his earthly ministry. In Luke 8, 46, when the woman of, with the issue of blood was healed, Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And, and there it's almost like the power is distinct from him. Operating almost separate from His own human cognition un until it's gone. And so we don't see... It's not like uh, Spider-Man. You know, he, has to, he has to point his hand to get the, the web to come out. This lady touches him. Power comes out and he perceives it after the fact. Almost like... It's almost as if he's not even fully in control of this power, this power of the Holy Spirit. One more text, Matthew chapter 12. <coughs> Being at verse 24. When the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But 
If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I pointed this out previously. They don't say you can't really cast out demons. Nobody doubts his miracles. The accusation here is, is with reference to the power. By what power does this man do this? And Christ is correcting them. They have accused him of working in the power of Satan. They've just, if you keep reading, they have just committed the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin, and he goes on to explain this, that words of blasphemy can be spoken against the Son and be forgiven, but it's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that won't be forgiven. That only makes sense because he just says it's by the Spirit of God. He's carrying out works, clear, obvious, undeniable miracles in the power and, and display of the Holy Spirit. They look at it, they know it, and they say, that he, did, he did it by Satan. I will not concede the fact that he's operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. They say he's doing it by the power of the devil. And when he says that, that uh, it's sort of a rhetorical phrase, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. We know he's been preaching from the very beginning. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is here. What he's saying is he's, he's actually asserting it is by the power of the Spirit, the Spirit of God, that I cast out demons. And, and we again, would ask, if we had no doctrine of the Holy Trinity, we would ask, well, if He's God, then why does He have to say, by the Spirit of God, as if that's some separate power from Him? But here we have the Son incarnate acting as a true man in the power of the Holy Spirit. So hopefully you can see in those texts, and especially emphasized by Luke, that the Lord Jesus Christ carried out His ministry of deeds and love and mercy in the power of the Holy Spirit. And there are others. Just... I hope what will happen is if I could get this little nugget in your mind. When you begin to read through the Gospels, you're going to notice a lot of this stuff. So then we turn to His words, and, and we'll look at less passages here. Luke chapter 4, we'll, we'll start there. And end there. So this will be the last turning. Luke chapter 4. Beginning in verses 14 and 15, Jesus comes back from His temptation in the wilderness. Remember, He was led or, or driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Now He's returned, verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report, went, a report about Him went, through, went out through all the surrounding country. And He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now this is, again... Luke is sometimes referred to as the evangelist of the Holy Spirit. If you, if you read Luke Acts, all the, the corpus of Luke's writings, he talks about the Holy Spirit a lot. And a major theme is full of the Spirit speaking. Full of the Spirit speaking. There, words come out. The Spirit comes, words come out. Now here, he, he's returning in the power of the Spirit. And the first thing that it describes him doing is teaching in the synagogues. Luke's putting this together for us. We, you've already seen it earlier in, in Luke's gospel. But he's putting this together. The power of the Holy Spirit brings the man Christ to teaching. 
And that teaching is confirmed by the response of the people. He was glorified by all. That was sort of the, the stamp of approval. Then in the next section, verses 17 to 19, we get an example of what this would have been like, I think. 17 to 19, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now last week, we just focused on the concept of proclamation. What did he do? He came to preach. And I pointed out two times in this passage, the word for preach is used. One time it's the word that we would use for evangelize, to preach the gospel. This week, notice the source of his proclamation. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach, to proclaim. Same language that we saw with His deeds. The Spirit comes upon the man Jesus. The Spirit sets Jesus apart unto God for a particular ministry. He gives Him power to fulfill that ministry. And the focus here is the preaching of the gospel. He does it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now at the end of that chapter, this is the last, last passage we'll look at. At the end of that chapter, there's a very interesting scene in the life of our Lord that re requires a little bit more thought, I think. Maybe not. Look at verse 42. And when it was day, Luke 4, 42, when it was day, He departed and went into a desolate place. Period. Now, it doesn't tell us what he's doing, right? He just went out to a desolate place. What's he doing? He's praying. This is, this is what we, we know this. He doesn't have to say it. We know it. He went out to a desolate place. He's not counting his money. He, he's praying. And it says, And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And then Luke explains. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This, is, this was his habit. This is what he did. Now, a lot can be said and has been said about the prayer life of our Lord. And, and that's the very reason why we know when it says he departed to a desolate place. Luke doesn't have to tell us at this point he's praying because we know when he goes to get alone, that's what he's doing. He's going to pray. But I think it's also really important to note the, when you read the Gospels, what happens immediately after these little seasons of prayer. At one time, he, he's up all night praying. The next day, he picks his 12 apostles. Another time, he's praying. And the, the, next, uh, the next interaction, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, my Father has revealed this to you. There, there's sort of a, if you pay attention, Christ prays. And then something happens as a manifestation of his time spent with his Father. So he goes out to this desolate place. Again, I don't think we have to really prove what he's doing. He's praying. This is what he did. We don't know how much time he got to spend in prayer. It says, when it was day, his, his habit seems to be he's going out pretty early. But when, he, when it was day, he goes out to pray. At some time, these people come to him, and they, it says they would have kept him from leaving them. 
Now that sounds like a very noble endeavor, right? If I went somewhere and I preached and they came to me when I got done and they said, hey, listen, could you stay with us and just preach to us some more? I would think, I, I, I have to. I, I, this has never happened in my whole life. Something's happening. I need to preach. I, I should stay here. It seems very noble, but notice how Christ responds. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So, so here's what seems to be the picture. Christ goes out to pray. As with any man who's trying to live according to the will of God, he goes out to seek the will of his Father. And we could imagine this prayer might have had something, or contained something to the effect of, Father, what will you have me to do today? Assuming the Father hears and answers his prayers, he says later, Father, you always hear me. We know the Father hears his prayers. I'm assuming in this passage that he asks for the Spirit to continue to lead him and empower him to that work. He's acting as a man. Okay, if you, if you read up prior to this portion of Scripture, he's been really busy. Now he's up as soon as it's day, probably really early. How do you feel when you've been really busy and you have to get up really You're exhausted. He's probably exhausted. Father, what would you have me to do today? The Father confirms. I need you to go to other towns and preach the gospel of the kingdom. That's, that's what I sent you to do, to preach. Okay, Father, I hear what you're saying. This body that you have prepared for me is tired. This body is, is languishing. I need help. I, I can't continue to do this apart from the Helper, your Spirit. Would you give me more of, an, of, of, of the power of the Holy Spirit? And having prayed and having been heard, and I'm, I'm, again, I'm assuming, because we see this, the reason I think this is acceptable to assume is because if we put all of the biblical data together about what a man of God does when he needs to seek the will of God and be uh, empowered by, by God, this is what, what we see. These people come to him and they offer him a very noble task. Stay here with us. Having spent time with his father, having been empowered by the Holy Spirit, he is able to resolutely say, No. I've got other work to do. Now, on the outside, we would look at this. Again, if this were me or if this were you, you went to preach somewhere and the people were begging you to stay and preach some more, I would probably say, wow, it does sound like an open door. Don't leave. If they're asking, don't leave. And, and we look at these things from a very superficial perspective. But Christ could look at this situation having met with His Father, whereas we would say, don't leave, stay. He says, no, I, I, I have other tasks. And there are many times when we have occasions like this where from the outside somebody might look at us and say, if you stay in this lane right here, this is going to pro provide you some very effective, fruitful, productive ministry according to my judgment. But you've been over here alone with the Lord and you say, the Lord's not called me to that. This is my task. I'm staying in this lane. And people from the outside might look and say, that seems like a, a lesser work. Why would you not give yourself to all of this? But if you've been with the Lord, and if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you can resolutely say, take your, uh, what, what you think about what would be productive and, and just go away. I've been with the Lord. I know what I need to do. 
This is what Christ has done. So he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. And, and he was preaching. And we've seen an example of that earlier in the chapter. He is anointed by the Holy Spirit to preach. So there's another example. And he goes out and he preaches in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we can read through the Gospels and we see that as he preaches, he preaches with authority. They were astonished because he preached as one having authority and not as their scribes. His preaching was convicting. He says to the rich young ruler, and when he says, well, I've, I've kept all that from my youth, what do I have to do? He says, well, just go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And he goes away sorrowful. He's pierced because he knows he has many things. He knows he has riches. He's convicted. His preaching is effectual. He, he goes up to Matthew, follow me, leaves everything and follows him. His preaching is biblical. How many times does he say things like, is it not written or is it not true that you know not the Scriptures or the power of God or Scripture cannot be broken and things like that. His preaching was thoroughly biblical. His preaching was compassionate and attractive. As we've seen people come from miles around to hear what he's saying and his preaching was hated by hypocrites. The one story where they say, it says that they were offended because they perceived that he was speaking of them. You know, they could tell. They hated it. This is Spirit-empowered preaching. Authoritative, convicting, effectual, biblical, compassionate, and hated by people who hate God. In the power of the Spirit, He goes out to preach. So we see that in His Word ministry, just as with His deeds, the man Christ Jesus carried out His work in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now let me close with two quotes, one from a dead man and one from a living man. The first one is from Octavius Winslow. As man, he's speaking of Christ, as man, he was as dependent upon supernatural grace as we are. The human nature was a real substance with ours. Its separation from the slightest moral taint did not invest it with supernatural power itself, thus rendering it independent of the Spirit. He as much leaned on the grace that makes us what we are as the feeblest child of God. And I would, I would almost go so far as to say Christ leaned on the power of the Holy Spirit more than the feeblest child of God because the, even the feeblest child of God, in our dependence, we always have a little bit of, of corruption, a little bit of unbelief, a little bit of, well, I'll lean 98%, but there's always something in the back of our minds that says I don't need to lean completely and fully. To, I, I would say there's, there's never been a man who was more dependent upon the Holy Spirit than the man Jesus even more dependent than the feeblest child of God because he depended fully, perfectly, absolutely every moment of every day in all of his actions. So I, I say that just to say there's a, a, a trusted source who sort of confirms what I've been trying to say. Now as we think about how this is going to apply to us and the church, listen to the words of Sinclair Ferguson. What Paul will describe as walking in the Spirit and bearing the fruit of the Spirit, finds its prototype in Jesus Himself, as does Paul's rich description of love as the first and most essential mark 
of the Spirit. In other words, any time in the New Testament you see Paul or Peter or anyone describing how a Christian must live and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, you will find it preeminently exemplified in the man Jesus. That's confidence. Here's what to do. Here's what it looks like in a, in a, a man walking with his feet in the dirt like ours. He goes on to say, The fact that Jesus was the man of the Spirit, therefore, is not merely a theological categorization. It was a flesh and blood reality. What was produced in Him was fully realized human holiness. Fully realized human holiness. What does God require if we are to enter into His presence? If we are to stand before Him without being destroyed, what He demands is fully realized human holiness. Absolute perfection. And that's what Christ has wrought for us. That's what He did. That's what He came to do. If He didn't come to do that, we have no salvation. But He's done it. He didn't come as true God to utilize His Godness in a way that was disconnected from us as human beings. When we read the story of Christ, we're, we're not reading the story of a superhero where we say, well, well He did all of those things and it, it's fun to talk about. It is fun to talk about. But He took on flesh and used His pure humanity and the power of the Holy Spirit to do for us what we could not do. And so our response to that, I believe, should be praise be to God for this unspeakable gift, unimaginable, incomprehensible, indescribable gift of a Christ who comes and takes on flesh, doing what we cannot do as our substitute, dying in our place for all of our sins. Thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift, but also the gift of the Holy Spirit who takes that work and brings it down through the centuries and applies it to us through faith and gives us this work as if it were ours so that the Father looks upon us and treats us as if we had done this perfectly. What a great gift of a Christ and what a great gift that we have in the Holy Spirit. Well, let's pray.